This is Global Sport Matters Live. everyone and welcome to our GSM Live for Friday, May 29th, 2020. My name is Andrew Ramsamy and I'm the Director of Digital Content for the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU. I'm so happy that many of you have joined us today. Uh, a lot going on in the world, a lot going on in news, breaking news happening as we speak right now. But for this hour, we hope that you can spend some time with us to talk about uh, and, and engage with us in conversation on what's happening with uh, sport in Latin America. Uh, the video you just saw was actually produced by a friend of mine in Texas. His name is David Blue Garcia. Um, and he produced that spec spot for Nintendo all by himself during this pandemic as a sign of boredom. Um, you can see that in the spot, uh, David gets a little bit of a gut, um, wants to get back out on the pitch and wants to get playing again. So uh, I'm sure you're all ready to, to get engaged and, and get into this conversation. Uh, we've got some great panelists today. We have Brenda Elsie, Carlo Bustamante, Julio Ricardo Varela, Victor Ocando, and myself. We'll be talking about a lot of different topics and a lot of different subjects. Um, you know, something I want you to know about the, the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters is that, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been committed to telling you about what's happening across the world. And as sport attempts to make a return, and what the reset of sport might look like. So we are actually going to be continuing these conversations through the month of June. Next Friday, our discussion will be on coaching in the new normal. So be sure to join us then. There's a very clear line of demarcation now between what I'm calling BC and AC, before coronavirus and after coronavirus. But what remains unclear is how many of sports challenges, issues, and opportunities will be addressed. While many of today's conversations will begin with sport, where we might end up could be completely different from where we started. And that's what makes sport so great. It starts with a conversation. So if we get lost at any point, just know it started with sport. So with that, let's begin. What we've seen is that the coronavirus has no borders. It's a disease that began in China back in December, made its way to Europe, then onto North America, and now has migrated back here uh, has now migrated south, pardon me, to Latin America. And earlier this week, the World Health Organization declared Latin America as the new epicenter of COVID-19. As governments and leagues begin to feel the health impact of COVID-19 and the financial pinch, the fallout will force many teams and organizations to reduce their spending and how that is going to impact their, their country's sport, let alone the global supply chains of football. And for the, for the, the purposes of our conversations today, I will be referring to football uh, as soccer and soccer as football. They're both interchangeable. And also how baseball is going to be left in the lurch. So joining us for our first segment today are Julio Ricardo Varela and Victor Ocando. Julio is a journalist. He's a senior executive at Futuro Media, which produces NPR's Latino USA. And he is co-host of In the Thick. And Victor is an international sports lawyer, lecturer, and external legal counsel for soccer clubs and agents in Venezuela, South America, and Europe. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Good. So, hey. you know, Latin America is a large grouping of countries, each with their own leagues, their teams, their politics, their governments, and their economies. How has COVID-19 impacted them as a group, but also indiv individually? So, Julio, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, first of all, um, 
rest in peace, George Floyd, because I, it's very hard. I mean, as a journalist, I'm actually glad that I'm talking about something that I'm passionate about, but I can't, I'd be remiss to not uh, acknowledge what is happening in the United States right now is historic. And I um, just want to take that moment. But to give this context, Andrew, um, I want to just, when you said pandemic, I, I really want people to think about what it means about this COVID epidemic impacting Latin America. So I don't think a lot of people know that Brazil is the number one, number two country in the world right now with the most uh, COVID-19 cases. And then if you go down the top 35 countries, you have Peru at 11, you have Chile at 12, and that is recent. You have Mexico at 16, you have Ecuador at 24, you have Colombia and 32. In the DR, in the Dominican Republic, there is about 16, about 16,500 cases that have already been confirmed. And this is all from the Johns Hopkins map. Argentina, all of a sudden, is starting to appear on the map with, a, with more than 14,000 cases. And my homeland, my querida isla, Puerto Rico, um, the, one of the first countries in U.S., jurisdiction to implement lockdowns is at about 3,600 cases. So you have to start looking at this as a context. Before we talk about sports, you have to look at the context that yes, Latin America right now in the Caribbean is, is going to, we're going to see, sadly, we're, this is not improving. And so when you look at conditions in Latin America, where there is even greater inequality, when there is even greater density in places like in big cities where you have, you know, the rich are rich and the poor are very poor, all the conditions of a perfect storm of tragedy. And when you see the images of dead bodies on the streets of Ecuador, when you see, uh, you know, recent stories coming about, about like Peruvian families burying multiple relatives within a week, like this is becoming a common thing. So you have to look at this, you know, when you think about sport, when you say football, and I'm going to say football is not used interchangeably, Andrew, uh, football is football. Um, and it's football americano, North americano. So I do say soccer. I'm a huge soccer player. But, you know, we, we talk about Latin American culture. And then when you talk about baseball or pelota, as they say in Puerto Rico, um, yes, these two, probably the two biggest global sports in Latin America are being severely, impact, severely impacted. One of the things I'll just leave with this, Andrew, is I'm, I'm actually doing a story for a global sports matter, uh, for global sports, excuse me, about um, – about Dominican ball players, about professional ball players in the DR, and also minor league players, and and that are Caribbean players that are stuck in the United States, and I'm looking at those unintended consequences of not being able to 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 uh, to to have a livelihood right now. And what right. does that mean? And what does that mean in the culture? So, there's, I threw a lot your way, but I I wanted to at least begin this with some context and and what's going on in Latin America and in the Caribbean. And we will definitely talk more about that, Julio, especially the story that you're working for us right, you know, right now, which we'll be publishing in a couple of weeks. But Victor, you know, as, as a sports lawyer, how have, you know, clubs and governments dealt with this real moment of, you know, force majeure, right? No one expected that a pandemic would literally shut down the entire world, um, but in particular how sport is going to be impacted in, in Latin America. So where do, you, where do you see things, you know, happening there, Victor? Well, uh, first of all, I would say that uh, Commonwealth suspended uh, the competitions back in March in the uh, World Cup qualifiers that would take place that month, and they are expect, expecting to be back in, on September. 
and also uh, they uh, gave a, a, a form for the uh, pa, pa, the clubs that are participating in the Continental Cups, like Copa Libertadores and Copa Sudamericana. But in some countries like Venezuela, this money is not enough because many clubs have uh, overdue payments uh, with the with the players, and they are right now in a really bad uh, shape. And in, in general, while the the, the uh, competition we start or not, it will be depend on the restrictions of each country because each country has its own uh, reality and situation. And can you talk about specifically, uh, Victor, what's happening in Venezuela? We know that the U.S. has, you know, placed sanctions against Venezuela, you know, going back several years now. And then, you know, the, the challenges with whether you want to call it a dictatorship or a regime or what, what have you. But how is Venezuela specifically dealing with this? Yeah. Uh, in Venezuela, the state of alarm was uh, issued by in March without the approval of the uh, legitimate national assembly. And it's also being used uh, as an excuse for the shortage of gasoline in the in the country, and the ground zero of the of the uh, pandemic or the outbreak in the country started in the Margarita Island in the state of uh, Nueva Espalda, where uh, 83. Uh, people were uh, infected that, that are uh, related with two uh, baseball players from a well-known academy that produce uh, MLB players that went to Dominican Republic and then uh, went back to to Venezuela. And this topic is important because the regime also uh, arrested some staff of the academy because they gave information about the uh, people who were, that were infected to the legitimate government. You know, so that's the actual problem in baseball. And recently, the uh, the president of the Venezuelan Baseball League he admitted that probably the the league would not be played in October, in October due to the situation with the COVID-19 and also with the uh, economic crisis in Venezuela. In other sport, sports like football, uh, we are referring to soccer as uh, football. Football, uh, football, 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 football. We're just going to say exactly. football. In We're going to just say football. We're going right. to convince Andrew. He's getting soccer. I said it, but excuse me. Yeah, you see, you right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's say football. The Venezuelan uh, National Association they suspended the competition back in March, but then uh, recently in, in in May they avoided uh, the the season and boiled all the the results. And they are expecting to be back in September if the conditions allow to be back. And as I said, condition, it means if the regime allows sports to be back. And one point uh, I wanted to highlight about this topic is that 
the medical commission of the uh, Venezuela National Association, they highlight the the situation that the tests are not uh, for public access for the uh, private organizations. So it might uh, uh, happen that the, the the most of the coaches and players uh, are not going to be uh, tested. So that uh, gives like a another situation that they might require Commonwealth or or the league right. to assume the the cost of the of the test because the the tests are only managed by the uh, national health system. Right. And and both you know Victor and you Julio you you kind of touched a little bit upon you know the kind of contingent relationship that exists between Latin America and the United States and, you know, player talent and availability. Julio, I know you're, yeah. you know, we talked about the story that you're working for us. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're hearing from some players that you're talking to about, you know, this moment of being in limbo? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, I mean, not only from a cultural perspective, you know, when you think about major league baseball having, you know, 25 to 30% Latino Latin American ball players, and that goes into the minor leagues. And I know we're going to have uh, Carla the Mexican league because this is all connected. Right. And, and so it, you know, this is a livelihood, right? So when, you know, you lost your job and when you get into these issues of like union and, and, and what's going on, I mean, you can only, you can only like train so much, there's a, you know, there's a lot of Dominican ball players I, that, you know, I, I'm beginning to talk to who are like training and helping charities in the DR, but you know, there's not, there's no activity here. And so when you start looking at the fact that, you know, we should be in the middle, you know, we're, we're at the end of May, right after Memorial day. Like, right. This is when, this is when summer starts and baseball takes over. And, and I mean, we would start like, to talk about the all-star break. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know. And like people like look at it through an American lens, but they don't stop to look at like, what these Latin American ballplayers mean to Latin America, right. to the DR, to Puerto Rico, to Venezuela. Like you, it's, it's, to me, it's like you follow these guys like superstars and to not have it is, is, you know, you miss out. I mean, you're, we're missing out on these, you know, unique cultural moments. And also this notion that these Latin American ballplayers are just these docile guys who are like so lucky to play major league baseball. Like they get it. I mean, they know that this is an issue and, and you know, these whole issue of the union, right? Like baseball is trying to go to the players union and say, Hey, no, no, maybe, you know, it's a pandemic. Maybe you shouldn't make so much. And like, I get it. I understand. But you're, these guys aren't like the guys that I talk to, these guys come from very humble roots. Like they give back to the DR. Like, you know, Pedro Strop, who I'm going to be talking to, I'm talking for the start, like he's, he gives back to his community, like the Cincinnati Reds reliever. So this notion of these like greedy baseball players in the time of pandemic, I kind of want to hesitate a little bit there because these guys care about the game. They save, they want to save the game. They realize it's deep roots into Latin American Caribbean culture. And they know that it's a special sport. So I, it's not as simplistic as what we're hearing, you know, in the, in the takes about, you know, greedy baseball players playing in the pandemic. And that's what I hope my story tries to cover a little bit of. Well, and to your point too, right? So many players do come to the U.S., might play in the minor leagues, hoping to get that chance to get into the major leagues. But once the season typically ends here in October, and we'll talk about this with Carla later right. on, they return back to their home the countries. Right. right. And and then they continue to play baseball throughout the year, right. which then turns into the Caribbean League or the, you know, Caribbean series. I mean, there's there's right. this whole interdependency on 
what gets decided here, right? So, um, you know, Victor, and you know, kind of been wrapping up this 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 segment. You know, you came to the U.S. just as you know Venezuela's crisis was beginning to escalate even further. You know, sanctions placed against Venezuela. How do how does a country like Venezuela, under this immense weight and pressure, move forward with baseball and football? Yeah, I is hard because like in in sports in, in Venezuela in in football perspective they don't have any like actual income from uh, sponsorship or uh, TV rights or anything like that that happens in in other countries of South America so the the money that sustain the the industry only comes from the owners and that's uh, very difficult and in the baseball perspective, recently, the DirecTV was shut down by the uh, regime agency of telecommunications. And this, this, this happened because uh, the, the agency required that AT maintain two channels that are tied and sanctioned by the U.S. government. And they couldn't make business with a sensing company by, by the U.S. And this is important because DirecTV uh, broadcasts the most of the games of the Venezuelan Baseball League. So they won't have that income too. So right. uh, it's a really challenge for the uh, sport to move forward because it's in the midst of a uh, uh, humanitarian crisis, uh, economic crisis, and also uh, COVID-19 crisis. Right. It's a, it's a really challenge. Well, Julio and, and, and Victor, we will you know, continue this conversation. We'll have you guys come back uh, later on in the show to talk about more of this. Um, you know, just this week, the Mexican national team announced that they are not going to be playing in the U.S. until fans are allowed back into stadiums. Meeting El Tri is unlikely to play in the U.S. this year, according to the Mexican Federation president, uh, uh, Jan de Luisa. So with that, uh, we're going to do a poll. Uh, some teams have come up with very creative ways to get back up and running by creating virtual experiences like pumping in fake crowd noise, creating interactive apps so that fans can virtually cheer and even boo. One team has even erected large video screens around their stadium so that fans can show up virtually on a Zoom-like call and their faces are displayed on these screens so that the the team players uh, can see. So the question for our poll is, are you willing to participate in sports if a virtual spectator option was offered? So option one is yes. What's one more Zoom call? Option two is no, the last thing I want is another Zoom call. Or, huh, what's a Zoom call? So, Victor, uh, you know, would you take the option of going to a virtual game? If, if that were an option, would you want to be a part of that? I, I am not actually following the Bundesliga right now because we are the public and it's hard to, like, feel the same, but maybe if it's a virtual environment that everyone is making some kind of noise, I definitely would be uh, looking forward to, to, to assist to uh, an event like that. 
And Julio, would you want to participate virtually by whipping out a nap and hitting yay no. or boo? No, no. I, I want to go play. You want to go play? I, I want to go play. I'm, I'm a futbolista. I, I, I play in an over 50 soccer league and I have a pancita. I have like a gut and I just want to go play. And I do want to watch the games on the pitch and I want to watch it on television, but I'm okay. I mean, I just want to play and I want to see some games and that's, that's about it. Well, and I see some really good questions coming in um, from Gippy and from Sam and, and Gippy and Sam will actually take your questions later on in the show. Um, Kendall, do we have the results of our poll? Sure do. So uh, nobody is wondering what a Zoom call is. Surprising, right? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Thank God we're on one, right? <laughs> so I would say overwhelmingly, yes. What's one more Zoom call? So people are willing to participate. Um, and it is. It's very fascinating to see those innovative ways that, that you know, players and fans are still kind of getting a chance to interact. But uh you know, nothing takes away the actual live, live game, but in this time, what are you going to do? So those that said no, last thing I want is another Zoom call, 29%, but 71%. Yep, that's what they would like to do. All right, Julio. So we have started your new virtual spectator fan club to see you back out on the pitch. I hope, yeah, I, yeah. Okay, we'll see. I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> my touch is so bad right now. It's like if I would, if I hit a soccer, if I got a soccer ball hit on my foot, it would probably go like eighty yards the other way. It's so bad. But one day. All right. Well, moving along on to our our next segment. Uh, Twenty nineteen was a historic year for women's sports, and almost every part of women's sports saw some sort of meteoric rise in attention from audiences around the world. And no one sport saw more attention in 2019 than women's soccer with, a, with the Women's World Cup playing out uh, in France. Uh, joining us now is Brenda Elsie. She's the Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University and co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast and the development lead for FairNet. Uh, Fair Network is an organization that brings uh, together folks to combat inequality in football. And she's also the author of Futbolera. A History of Women and Sports in Latin America. Brenda, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Brenda, now with, you know, with COVID-19 happening, I mean, before we, we jump into COVID-19, let's talk about 2019 and the Women's World Cup. Did the Women's World Cup help or hurt sports for women in general, and how did it impact Latin America? Well, it undeniably helped women's sports and especially football. Um, also, it's important to understand that the qualifying for the Women's World Cup in South America in Comebol is done um, with a very short tournament, and that's called the Copa America that also qualifies them for the Olympics and the Pan American Games. Um, we can talk about inequality there for sure. Um, but the appearance of Argentina and Chile uh, was really new and exciting, and the Brazilians also, and everybody loves Marta. So it brought a lot of attention. The whole campaign brought a lot of attention uh, to women's football. So I'm assuming that that momentum and that energy was coming into 2020. Everyone was feeling this kind of renewed sense of purpose around women in sports and in particular in, in football. And then boom, COVID-19 comes in. And now what? Where do things stand? Well, it's really important to sort of get the landscape of Latin American women's football. Uh, and when I say Latin America, so I'm including also Mexico, which had a really exciting 
um, couple of first seasons to their women's league. Colombia had a couple of great seasons with the Di Mayor. Uh, Brazil looked good. Argentina signed its first professional contracts. And this is all intersecting with the Ni Una Menos feminist movement in Latin America. So there was a lot of dynamism around it from the grassroots level on up to the national teams and the professional leagues. But still, it's important to remember that a very small minority of women have professional contracts. So when we're talking about precarity, economic precarity, instability, uh, everything that Julio and Victor touched upon is magnified exponentially when it comes to women's football. And what we're seeing, and the FAIR Network has been trying to document these cases as we get incidents, are things like not paying those very small contracts that do exist, canceling leagues, not prioritizing women in scheduling, uh, development money for grassroots girls, football goes I don't know where, that's always been a problem, but now you can expect that to be a bigger problem. Uh, and basically we're very concerned about the use of this pandemic to implement sexist measures that, that many people within the federations and the confederations and the clubs what, wanted to see anyway. And basically they're not really making economic sense. So, you know, the culture of masculinity knows no bounds. The culture of toxic masculinity knows no bounds. And in particular, you know, Latin American culture is known for its machismo. How does, how does this moment play into that? Is this a moment for organizations like yourselves to kind of speak up? Is it a moment for women in sport, in particular in Latin America, to be able to speak up as well, too? Or is this kind of like, you know, kind of like what Julio and Victor were talking about, you know, we're just glad to be here. We'll just be glad, glad to be getting back to sport and whatever, whatever drips come our way, we're going to take. Well, I hope that's not the attitude. I mean, when there's something like this, it's a moment where we can shake up the system and question the system. And so this is going to be an ongoing political struggle over the next couple of years. I mean, I wouldn't want to characterize Latin America as being any more sexist than anywhere else. Uh, I would like it to be known just as much for feminismo as it is for machismo. And on top of that, if the U.S. women's national team cannot be paid equally, I mean, where's everybody else? So, you know, it's worth just sort of couching it in those terms. Um, but however, um, the world of football has been probably more important to building constructions of national identity and masculinity in Latin America than other places. And thus it's very often a last bastion for some of these things that, you know, have, we wouldn't expect. And that's, that's kind of what's, when people ask me about the U.S. or why U.S. women so successful, I also try to point out football is not the U.S.'s main sport. So right. it, it's a little better maybe to compare, you know, that kind of football um, and how much progress have women made in that kind of football uh, to this? That said, uh, the other problem, which is kind of across the board that I think needs to be questioned, is the idea of marketability, that given these economic crunches on clubs, they have to focus on where is their main economic engines, and they have to focus on men. And that really ignores the billions of dollars that have been sunk into men's football in Latin America. And so this could be a real opportunity to prioritize 
the women's game to prioritize the girls, of course, when it's safe to come back and on their own terms. I'm not suggest suggesting women should play just because men are, but um, hopefully it's an opportunity. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that happening right now. We've seen, for example, the CBF, the Brazilian Federation, uh, gave money to first division clubs to help them in this financial crisis. Uh, it was earmarked for women in particular to pay their salaries. And um, clubs like Audax simply said, well, we just decided not to, and you didn't make us sign anything that made us do it. Yeah, you and were saying that, that you've yeah. been talking to women there, saying that they haven't been paid. Right, they haven't been paid. And when interviewed, Audax said, no, that we haven't paid them. We know we were supposed to with this money, but we decided there were other priorities and you didn't make us sign anything. So that's the kind of, you, you know, that's the kind of reticence that you're up against at all the time. And so we're hearing this, yeah, from across the region. So in your book, you talk about the history of football in Latin America and the many excuses that have been used along the way to stop women from playing, from it's going to, you know, affect them from a reproductive perspe perspective. I mean, do you feel like at some point they just run out, they've run out of excuses and it's things like this, a pandemic that just is like, ooh, thankfully we have this thing now, like to your point, we can use this as an excuse to not move forward on what should be something that is equality, right, for all. Well, at least the medical excuse has been exhausted. If you could believe that it took, you know, until it, until neoliberalism took hold and then it was the market and then it was like, oh yeah, we're, no, we're good with the medical stuff. Um, so certainly we're in an age where it's all about, you know, profitability and going back to that. Well, people just aren't interested. The quality of the game isn't that good. You hear that sometimes. At the same time, because at least in South America, the clubs are civic associations. They are still mutually owned and not privately owned. Many of the men who have been working a long time to fight privatization see the group of women at the grassroots level, at the youth level, at the fan level, and at the club you know, professional level as being their allies. And there's been a push from, from some of those segments to sort of join forces because they recognize and, and feminists recognize that it's not going to be a way to push forward to just privatize the club and accept this marketing uh, kind of line that they're going to give all the time. I know we talk about Latin America as being, again, this kind of monstrosity, but if you could point to like one group, one country or one team that's actually moving this forward, who or what is that one group or one team or one country? <laughs> I wish I, I wish I could tell you. I could tell you that uh, these women are working very hard, throwing everything they have at it. Not only do they have to be athletes, but now they have to be activists. Now they have to be, you know, gender equality specialists, marketing managers. Uh, I guess one of the best success stories so far, there's two, one in Argentina, where Tapia, the president of AFA, the federation in Argentina said, we're not going to go through with the contracts. Again, remember, this is only a, half of the team has contracts. And the pushback was so strong that within about 12 hours, he had to take that back. Also, the Colombian women's open letter um, to the country uh, when 
well, like Clubin Independiente, for example, said we're doing a 50% salary cut across the board. Well, those women only make $225 a month. So 50% to them is simply a matter of, of, of eating and rent compared to the Colombian men. And they were able to get them to backtrack too. So uh, there are success stories and there's tons of people fighting the good fight. Well, this actually sets up uh, really good to talk about our, our next poll, which is, you know, what is the most important issue to advance women's sports and, and, and which one should we address? So uh, option number one is pay equity. Uh, option number two is more ability to play. Option number three is more media coverage and attention. Option number four is more women in leadership positions within men's sports. Or option number five, more women in leadership positions within women's sports. So as we're taking that poll, Brenda, what would, what would you think would be the most important issue if you were to rank those, you know, one to five? Um, oh, I think more women in leadership positions. Uh, I mean, the men and women are governed in, in Latin American football by the same governance organizations. So I guess that makes me say men since it's dominated by men but um i kind of think about uh the transparency issues that have happened usually the most corrupt federations are the ones with the worst gender equity and uh we have found that there's a history of putting women in those leadership positions that that changes considerably and you get more of the money that's supposed to go to development and this counts for boys academies as well going to the right places all right, so Kendall, how are things looking on our poll? All right, so we're kind of split here. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, Brenda, you might find this very interesting. So pay equity, uh, 25% said that that was most important. More ability to pay, 4% said that that's most important. More media coverage and attention, 13%. But relatively split right between more women in leadership across both men's sports and women's sports, each with 29%. So that's pretty fascinating to know that we just, we need more women in leadership is what it sounds like. What do you think about that, Brenda? Yeah. Is that that a bad idea? I think that's a really good idea. (laughs) I hope, I wish they were all in charge um, of the bodies that be because it it would be great. We've never had in Comebol a a permanent uh, position held and elected uh, by a woman. Do you think that this could be a moment where that becomes kind of like this pivot point where someone does go in and say, hey, now is this opportunity to really think about this? And if if someone were to do that, that, where could that change actually occur in leadership? I certainly hope so. I do think there's a lot of scrutiny right now on FIFA and their race to protect the people who need the least protection to dig into that billions of dollars of, I don't know, money that they have. And the New York Times reporting that they're just, you know, so worried about the the Euros and the Premier League. And you want to say, um, hey, let's, let's put this towards uh, people who really need it. All right. Well, we will come back with you with more on that. Uh, and that tees up, you know, now our next segment, we're, we're gonna go to Mexico. Uh, we're traveling around the world on GSM Live and going to Hermosillo, Mexico. Joining us is Carla Bustamante. She's the communications director for the Naranjeros de Hermosillo. Uh, the Naranjeros are part of the Mexican Pacific League and have been around since 1945. 
the Naranjeros are the most winning franchise in sports in Mexican history with 20 titles. So, Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andre. I'm so happy to be here and welcome to Mexico in my home, of course. Yes. <laughs> this is your home. <laughs> we can't we can't travel anymore, so we're going to have to do these virtual tours. Um, we, we have been using this phrase with Naranjeros. Uh, we are safe in home, so we are safe in home, right? So what is it like, I mean, Carlo, what is it like to run a PR and communications for a baseball team during a pandemic from home? It has been a little chaotic because uh, I think everybody are here right now. We work in media and we work in marketing or communication and that kind of stuff. And we had more work during this pandemic, right? Because there's a lot of things to communicate. It's much better to communicate than don't communicate. So it's like the, we need to do something else and sometimes trying to entertain our our fans uh, talk, not talk about the COVID because everybody knows about the COVID right now, but trying to do something different and try to be empathetic and try to be warm with our fans and, and trying to be different. And I noticed that the Naranjeros have been very active on social media, almost posting every day, engaging with your sponsors. I mean, it almost seems like, I mean, this is the off season right now, technically, right? You don't, technically come back until later in the summer and the fall but yeah how, how is it to feel like in that world of like yes there's a pandemic but we're also still doing what we're doing it was a conversation that we have in our organization it's like uh, well we are not in a baseball season it's like what we need to communicate and he said that well we, we want to engage with our fans and we want that they knew that we are here from them so it's like uh, we need to talk uh, and let's have this conversation but in a different way right it's like having like uh, activities like coloring pages and um, lives where our players uh, following them during this quarantine life, uh, how, in, how they are training, how they are cooking. It's, it's, it's kind of been a different content and it has been a little crazy uh, because we are starting posting like every day. But uh, I think it's like the people and our fans are enjoying that and we are happy with that. How's the team doing? How, how are they feeling about potentially coming back in the fall or maybe not, depending on how things all play out. I mean, we talked about the kind of interdependency of whatever Major League Baseball does have, has a ripple effect. And I know we had talked about that next year. The Caribbean uh, uh, the championship is supposed to be in Mexico, right? So, you know, how's everyone feeling? Well, yesterday we have a little more uh, information uh, because we're like finally seeing a little the light of the end of the tunnel because uh, the other league from Mexico, the Mexican Baseball League, uh, give uh, a press release about uh, their, uh, their league. They are saying that of course, if the government approval, uh, they're going to have to play on August, uh, the first days of August, and they're going to have more than 40 games. So they're going to end at the end of November. It's supposed our league starts on October. So, well, to, today there's going to be a meeting with the, all the president of the Mexican Pacific League, and they will start talking about that and how that's going to affect us, us. Because we are still believe that we can play because um, there are uh, several months ahead, so we can play uh, still that. 
but we don't know what is going to happen when the, uh, the other season will be still playing. It's, it's November. But I think and I believe that we can play with all the other players that Julio and Victor were saying before because it's a domino effect, right? right. It's like uh, there are one, one, more than 1,000 players that were fired during these days from minor leagues, so they don't have a job. So, of course, and maybe they are desperate to play, so they came to our league, or even the Mexicans who are desperate to play, they can play in our league. So we are sure that we can have our season, and we must believe that. And one of the things that the Nada Heroes does is a, a summer camp, right, for, for kids. You had talked about, and when we last spoke, you weren't sure if you were going to do it or not. Where do things stand with, with the summer camp? Yeah, we don't believe we are going to have the summer camp because it's for kids. Um, for sure, we need to be first sure about the health of our kids and our coaches. And uh, everybody knows that it will secure for them. So uh, I don't think so that's going to happen because uh, normally and the regular days from the summer camps are in July. So it's like very soon. And I don't think that's going to happen. But we were looking, trying to do it in a different way, like in a virtual game, and maybe trying to give classes for kids uh, or lives, like they can learn from other players or other coaches. One of the things you had talked about um, was esports and, and participating in that. What, what's, what are the Naranjeros doing there? Yeah, we started, uh, it was like, oh, let's try to figure it out how we can play. It's like, it's not a baseball season, but it will be nice. So we started like one month ago, and it has been very awesome because we really enjoy that. Even the first game, I was with my jersey and my cap, and I was cheating on my team, even with was just virtual, and I was so happy with that. And we also... Uh, invite one of our players to play and see them on camera by uh, Skype and all this thing. And we'll start playing against other uh, teams from the Mexico Pacific League. So we already have four, and we already have the first one on television. Uh, we work with the television from here from Sonora, and we went uh, on air. And I think the people is enjoying just to share and just to see a sports, to watch a sports again, because we need to entertain and to think different things that is not a COVID. So let's assume that everything goes as normal. Everything gets back to usual. Do you think that there will be fans in the stands when the games do return? I hope they do, but I think as a team, it's our responsibility to give them uh, all the confidence and the truth that they're gonna be held for sure. Not all, not only our fans, for sure our players, our coaches, all the members, team, team staff. So we need to be safe for everybody. So I think we need to work in that and probably we're gonna be there. And I hope we can share in our communication and our social media, all these kind of things to our fans so they can feel secure and come back. Our Great. Well, um, we're we're just coming towards the the tail end of our of our conversation today, and we're actually going to put up another poll just as we were talking about esports and esports are on the rise. Um, the question that we have is: How would you participate in esports? Um, would you be a spectator, just like Carla, watching it on TV, putting on her jersey, and rooting for her team? 
Um, would you want to play competitively with other e-players? Um, having pro athletes and am amateurs competing together, is that something you would want to see? Um, would you actually play esports for financial or professional gain, meaning that you would do this as a full-time job? Um, or do esports or e-events not interest you at all? Is it something, Carla, that you think um, the team might continue on even if sport were to return, that you would continue to do esports? And what is esports like in, in Mexico? You know, we saw a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, Mexico doing a, a big online esports, I think LGBTQ event. You know, where do you see things going with esports? Yeah, I think we definitely need to go forward to that way because uh, I think this uh, pandemic uh, is teaching us uh, in a different way. So we need to think in the marketing area and business area, and we need to. So think about the, percep the perception of the reality right now. It's like if we can take our shoes, our tennis shoes, and go to play, we need to do it in a different way, right? Maybe I, I know I know it's not experience, and I really prefer the marketing experience. I, I, I really I really prefer to sense, to feel, to touch, to everything. But uh, we, we need to adapt in during this situation, and I need to. Definitely, uh, probably Naranjeros will continue doing that. And I know that the other league, the Mexican uh, Baseball League, already have also a, uh, an event of that. And they have a lot of viewers. Uh, it was also a winner. They include the players. So because they are already supposed to be during his baseball season, right? But yeah, yeah for us, uh, I think we continue doing this. So we'll get uh, some of the polling results together, but there's a question here from Gippy Duarte that he has for you, uh, Carla. He wants to know, how did sponsors take the current situation in terms of their activation rights and the uncertainty of the return of sport activities? And how are you currently measuring return on investment? So the question is, you know, how, how are sponsors dealing with this? And again, we kind of talked a little bit about it, but it seems like you guys are, are continuing to engage with your sponsors. Yeah, it, of course they are worried about that and they ask it like almost every day. So there's going to be a season, there's going to be a baseball season. So how this is going? And not a sponsor, of course, the fans. And I think everybody during this current time, we have questions, like more questions than answers, right? And for Naran Heroes, we decide to help our sponsors, uh, giving a free spaces uh, to post every day on Facebook and social media that they can engage with our fans and share promotions or share whatever they want to share with them. So we give you the, the free space. So you want to do it? Do it. Just, so we have a calendar and we schedule them then by one day each per day. Yep. So of course we want to work with them and we want they feel that we are close and we are ready to help because we want they come back also for our baseball season we, because we need it. We, we need our sponsors and that's we are doing that. That's great. All right. So Kendall, how did we do on our poll? Alright, so this one kind of surprised me. So with eSports on the rise, how would you participate? So as a spectator watching on Twitch, 19% of you said, yeah, I'd do it that way. Playing competitively with other e-players, only about 4% of you. Having pro athletes and amateurs competing together, that one kind of won a little bit bigger, 31%. 
nobody was interested in playing esports for financial or professional gain. <laughs> I wonder if that kind of speaks to how well they can play. Who knows? Yeah. And then esports e events don't interest me at all. Actually, was the winner with forty six percent. So I think it depends on obviously the audience we ask, but uh, you know this might be something that we could also push out on on our Twitter and see what what people like to do. All right. Well, I guess we're going to shut down our GSM Live esports strategy based on our polling data. Um, well, now I want to bring back all of our panelists. So Brenda, Julio, Victor, if you guys wouldn't mind, uh, and Lady joining back with us. We do have some questions. Um, and one of the questions that we got was from Debbie very early on in our conversation about Uruguay, um, saying that Uruguay has one of the lowest rates of COVID uh, in Latin America. Um, and it started to reopen this week. Can you talk a little bit about the return of sport there and what the long-term impact might be for Uruguay's lower rate of the virus compared to other countries? So I'm not sure if Victor, Julio, Brenda, you know, whoever wants to take I, I, it. I mean, I think we need to be careful of saying, like, what country has the lowest rate. And, and I'm not trying to knock the question because I think it's very important to look at the fact that we're just beginning to see at least in the Southern Cone, like, you know, no one was talking about Chile right. three weeks ago. I mean, seriously. And now Chile is number 12 in the world. And I think we need to take a pause. I understand, you know, this reopening. I know there's leagues happening in Costa, Costa Rica, and I think there's going to be examples of, like, leagues reopening empty. I mean, the fact that they're thinking about playing football in Brazil, even thinking about it or, like, is, like, to me is, like – ridiculous um so i think we, i think people are like we don't know i don't i don't know what others have to say about this but i there's no answer right now and i don't think we can i think it's a mistake to say like well uruguay is doing better in two weeks uruguay could be like chile because of the pro proximity because it's proximity of brazil even though they're closing the borders and you just don't know and i just fear that it's a little bit too soon to start comparing countries um and even in new mexico i mean i i know people talk oh we're gonna open up a baseball league mexico hasn't even reached its peak so i i think it's too early to have these conversations i don't know how others feel i have something about that i think uh, play the same because it's uh, a difficult time to uh, see what's gonna happen uh, the only thing that we know is that we actually we don't know anything, and it all depends on how the the, the outbreaks is developed in the country. And for sports in Uruguay, they have started like a, a reset plan to uh, restart the the season, but we have to see how that phases go before we uh, actually uh, say something about what is the impact. And for a competition model, I would say uh, any country in South America needs to have like some kind of equal time to prepare before the international competitions to not be, uh, uh, the integrity of sports not be affected. And for the economic model, from Uruguay and Argentina and Venezuela, the, these clubs are lived by the income that they receive from selling players. And the, the market in Europe is going to be 
very like uh, slow. Right. And right. they have to see how that's gonna move before we actually uh, know what impact is is it going to have in in this side of the of the country. But it's too soon yeah to to give a certain opinion about this topic. I mean, this is like dominoes meets Jenga meets a Rubik's Cube meets that finger game that you play with the numbers. I mean, it's it's really it's, complex, right? And if anyone yeah. has an idea of what they think it's going to be, um, they're just guessing, right? I mean, everyone at this point is just guessing. So, it's a Jumanji um, game. What, what, what was that? Jumanji game? It's a Jumanji <laughs> Yeah. Well. But it's also I mean, a lot like Monopoly. Um, <laughs> that's true. I'm yeah. with you there. Uh, Whoever's got the money, it's all about money. Particularly when you're looking at 2022, and I think Victor's point is really important about the right. integrity of that competition and what different confederations are going to come out with because, um, yeah, because those transfer windows are going to be changed up real quick would be my expectations. Um, there's going to be a lot of pressure on FIFA to loosen that window to loosen the windows, to loosen the regulations a little bit. Um, and I also would be, I would be stunned and am stunned that they think 2022, which was already changed, which is already highly problematic, is going to just, you know, keep going. But uh, Comebol is certainly crossing its fingers. And, you know, when it comes to FIFA and all football associations out there, they're always doing it in the best of interest of everyone and no money involved and nothing. You know what I'm saying? You know, (laughs) I really I'm, you know, that's me being sarcastic, but I'm just saying it's it's uh, this is all in the end. We can have all these questions, but what it comes down to, this is about money, dinero, plata, lana, pesos, however you say it. And that's what's going to dominate sports in Latin America. And, and as sad as it is, like the inequality of this region that we call home, that we are formed, you know, it's all going to be, you know, I don't have a lot of hope in change. I, because I know the history of this region and it makes me sad. So, but I stay hopeful. I stay right, hopeful. So I'm, so I'm going to throw it back at you. This is going to be our wrap up question for the entire panel. And if you could do it, you know, within a minute or so, what is the one thing that you are hopeful about? If there is hope, just a little bit of hope. Grassroots feminism. And what's been a dark week? Grassroots feminism, intersectional grassroots feminism in Brazil, in Argentina, in Mexico, in in Chile, all over the region. Um, You know, I have hope in the way that they're looking towards the future and the solutions that they put up in in their individual countries. And um, I think that's the place to look, honestly, is, is to keep promoting those ideas, promoting, you know, women in men sports leadership, fine women in women's leadership, fine women, 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 girls, trans, uh, LGBTQ movements. They are vibrant and dynamic and they are coming up with a ton of solutions yeah i i think from a baseball perspective i think baseball needs to realize that latin american ball players are saving baseball and my hope is that that becomes real and it just doesn't become like latin night or latin month or let's put on like spanish on our jerseys i really think that like the pipeline is what has saved professional baseball 
So let's be real and let's look at like immigration issues. Let's look at like pay issues. Let's look at like how we, you know, how these young kids get exploited and let's rethink the scouting system and the recruiting system. And I think those days are over and that keeps me hope. I think that uh, until these issues continue happening, we we have uh, things to talk about, but I uh, hope that uh, sometime in football, we don't have, uh, or we have like equal condition for all, for all the, the sections or the categories because we have seen that uh, maybe a club cut out the uh, women's section, but they didn't do the same for the for the men's section. So that's very unfair. So we need to take this opportunity in this adversity to change that and be more uh, or be together in the if we really want to change football and i know fifa is working hard on that but it's more to to be done and i really hope that uh, change in the near, near future and carla you'll have the last word For me in case, it will be a mix of different things. I, I think uh, during this pandemic, it, it, it gave us a chance to refocus in many things. So what is the thing that we're gonna focus on? What we're gonna bring to the table? So for me, it's like uh, for sure being held, being secure, like uh, in, in talking about the sports, uh, how many things that we need, that we need to think and players about payments, about, of course, equal pay, the, the possibility to play and grassroots and everything. It's like, I think uh, this gives us the chance to, to feel different, to be different and be more empathetic. So it's like, uh, I, I mean, we need to reorganize our ideas and what we're gonna bring to the table the next time that we can really be on a table with our, <laughs> with uh, many presidents or, or in the sports area that they have in the high levels. So let's, for me will be, let's think about that and how we can change that. Well, great. Well, I want to thank all of our panelists today for joining us. Uh, Carlo Bustamante, Brenda Elsie, Julio Ricardo Varela, and Victor Ocando. Thank you so much for being a part of this today. We really appreciate it. I would encourage everyone to follow them on Twitter. These are probably some of the most active people on Twitter uh, right now talking about sports. So, you know, we'll see how this all pans out. Um, and with that, I will then turn it back to Kendall. Oh, no, one more thing. Forgot to mention that. Join us next week for our next GSM Live on Friday, uh, June 5th, talking about coaching in this uh, new moment, um, in this new normal. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Global Sport Matters Live podcast. If you like us, be sure to click on the subscribe button. For the latest sports stories from around the world, visit globalsportmatters.com or follow us on Twitter, at Global Sport MTRS.